Hello, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Beyond Prisons podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brian Sodenstein. On this episode, Kim and I had a great conversation with historian and abolitionist David Stein about our present moment of struggle. David penned an excellent article in 2017 with our friends Dan Berger and Mariam Kaba entitled What Abolitionists Do that we link to in the episode notes. We asked David to reflect on this article in this moment of greater awareness of abolition and to share some of his thoughts and experience in abolitionist spaces. David Stein is a UC President's postdoctoral fellow in the Department of African American Studies at UCLA. His book manuscript, Fearing Inflation, Inflating Fears, The Civil Rights Struggle for Full Employment and the Rise of the Carceral State, 1929-1986, is forthcoming from the University of North Carolina Press. It describes the political economy of unemployment and efforts to win a federal governmental job guarantee and how this struggle impacted the ascent of mass incarceration. His research focuses on the interconnection between social movements, public policy, and political economy in post-1865 U.S. history. He has been a member of Critical Resistance since 2006, though his comments in this interview are not on behalf of the organization. Before we get to our conversation with David, we'd like to quickly ask you to please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to Beyond Prisons wherever you listen to it. This helps boost our appearance in search engines and podcast platforms and helps other people find out about us. Additionally, we know it's really tough out there for a lot of people, but if you're in a position to give, please support us on Patreon or check out the donate page on our website at beyond-prisons.com. Consider making a contribution to help us keep going. We love doing this show, and we're grateful to have more listeners in the past few months and weeks, but it's a lot of labor, and we could use your support to keep going. If you can't give, we completely understand and suggest that you consider telling your friends, family, and comrades about us. Finally, please make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up to date on everything we're working on. You can find links to those as well in the episode notes. All right, that's enough from me. I hope you enjoy our conversation with David Stein up next. We're glad to have you here. And um, why don't we just go ahead and, and dive right in. So we have a few questions to get us um, to get us started. And um, I just wanted to, you know, obviously we're living in a really interesting time, right? Where everyone seems to be, or not everyone, but most people, many people are talking about abolition now, um, at least more than I've ever seen talking um, about abolition. And, uh, you know, you're, you're a historian, you know, so I'm interested in what your thoughts are about what's happening right now and how a reading of history, um, and particularly past abolitionist movements, can help us to think about the struggles that we're facing. Hmm. Oh, wow. Well, that's a big question. Um, I think, first of all, uh, it's important to say that this is a really humbling moment um, for hopefully everyone. <laughs> but but especially, especially me, it's a humbling moment um, to try and think about everything going on in the streets, the layers of work that have brought people to this point in terms of building popular consciousness about prison policing and surveillance abolition, um, all those things, all those things linked together. And one thing that I think history can can guide us on, and this is something my my colleagues Dan Berger and Mariam Kava and I had, had written in the in the piece we wrote for Jacobin, what abolitionists do, which is that history provides too many instances where our hubristic expectations of what is possible in a given temporal horizon are, are chastened. Most abolitionists in our experience would subscribe to Nelson Mandela's adage that it only seems impossible until until it's done. Mm -hmm. And so I really, you know, I've very much been feeling that sentiment these days. And so for, for many years, you know, there's a kind of internal conversation within the abolitionist movement about, you know, 
both what should what we should be working on and sometimes you know in people's more uh despairing moments you might hear people say you know uh well well we won't see abolition happen happen in our lifetime um and i I've often pushed back on that sentiment, not because I necessarily think it will happen within within our lifetime, or not because I did, uh, or, um, but more because we just really don't know. And and one of the you know really humbling things about studying history, as as I've done in my kind of day job as as a historian, is but but everyone can do this is to yeah really have a kind of radical humility about what what is possible as well as the kind of durability of of what it takes to build certain movements and the kind of uneven connection so i often think about how if you are to stop the clock in a given historical moment it can be really difficult to apprehend what Kind of a victory or you know a loss looks like and so you know, one of the people who have studied really closely is the civil rights activist by Breston and in the weeks after the March on Washington which Rustin had been kind of the main coordinator of and the main organizer of he was just despairing you know uh, he gives a speech and he says you know where are we where are we winning my friends you know we're losing everywhere 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 um and he doesn't know in that moment that number one he just organized one of the greatest um moments in in this country's history in terms of popular protest but also he doesn't know that the civil rights act of, uh, act of 1964 is is on the horizon that the voting rights act of 65 is on the horizon he doesn't know what what's coming and so so he's in the, and I, I think about that moment a lot to be like we don't know what's on the horizon and we and and we should be you know kind of prepared for that so so i guess that's a kind of um tentative caveat about what what history what it means to to look out at, the, at this current moment um and, and what types of political transformations are are possible I love that. I, I really do. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, your comments on being able to perceive victories in that moment and how sort of cloudy and, and hazy it can be really resonates with me. It's something I think a lot about in sort of our contemporary social movements. I think particularly on the left, sometimes we have a really hard time recognizing and expressing when we have had victories. And it's a lot easier to recognize the defeats and um, and, and so I think that's, that's a, a great point and I'm really grateful for you, uh, making it, um, I, you know, you mentioned that article that you wrote, uh, with Mariam Kaba and Dan Berger, I guess now three years ago, um, it's incredible how fast time flies. I can't believe that was in 2017. I remember very well when that article came out. And it was in response to this totally garbage article written by Roger Lancaster in which uh, you know, he basically lays bare his ignorance on the subject of abolition and how deep it goes. And, you know, it's interesting to look back at that article now with a lot of the conversations that are happening in reaction to, you know, a very much burgeoning abolitionist movement. And I'm wondering, you know, in retrospect, in hindsight, if there's anything that you would do differently if you were writing that article now you know, is the, has the discourse gone anywhere else with regard to abolition? You know, certainly I feel like the reception to an article like what you wrote in 2017 now would have been much greater, uh, you know, now than it was then. But I was just curious, you know, in hindsight, would you write anything differently? Does anything, has anything changed since you wrote that? Um, what are your thoughts there? Well, I think probably the most important thing, uh, about it is I think there are articles written in kind of moments of, of mass uprising and rupture and articles or kind of commentary and analysis written in, in moments of reform. And I think that article is very much written in kind of the latter when we were about struggling for non-reformist reforms, you know, Trump was in office, there, there are, you know, harsh limits, all these things like that. Um, 
And I would just say in terms of if we were to go back and rewrite a different article, it wouldn't necessarily be different about like what abolitionists currently do and have done. I would say there's a lot more on the table now than there was yeah. then. And so I think some of the tone would, would certainly be different. Um, the other thing that I thought was important about that article, and, and you know, I'll speak for myself, I don't want to speak for Mariam um, and Dan, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with people not agreeing with abolition per se. You know, like uh, we right. all work in these sure. coalitions that all the time where people are like, you know, I'm not really sure if I'm fully on board with abolition, but we surely should shrink the prison and police budget, the uh, budget by 50% and decrease mm -hmm. and decarcerate by 50% or 80% or whatever given, given percentage. Um, and so the thing that I felt was, so had, you know, the original author or anyone for that matter just said, like, here's where I disagree with, with, you know, abolitionists. We all, we all, you know, a lot of our best friends and, you know, loved ones and partners and especially, sure. you know, pe people inside and who uh, um, are, are, you know, have, have some of those similar attitudes and that's totally okay. And we work together and we figure it out. Um, what we, what I felt was important about the article was just saying like, yes, and here's what abolitionists actually do in their daily life and in their, in their organizing. And here's where there's been some, some tangible victories. Um, and I think some of those uh, uh, coalitions are now, are now on the table. I'm, I'm grateful that a lot of them are, are you know, kind of weighted more towards, uh, towards the abolitionists, uh, towards mm -hmm. the abolition side right now. Um, but as far as the original article, I remember just feeling like, well, if they'd actually fact check this, like we wouldn't need to reply. There's nothing, right. you know, <laughs> someone writing an article that says, I disagree with abolition for X, Y, Z reasons. It's like, okay, cool. As long as you characterize abolition um, as it's actually manifest and, and practiced. Um, and I think we're seeing kind of some reappearance of that discourse discursive trope in in some of the articles and stuff about like what do they mean by defund it's like yes we actually mean defund you know <laughs> so so i think um again there's nothing wrong with like you know some writer for fox wants to say i don't agree with defund i disagree with them but but if they say you know defund doesn't actually mean defund that's just you know that's just bogus defund means defund <laughs> um so so yeah, that's some of what I think of, about, you know, looking back at that article um, now. I mean, I think the other thing that is really important to, to acknowledge um, are these, these a, a few different things. One, the layers of labor and work that countless people have been doing in abolitionist movements and alongside abolitionists to grow this policy debate and this conversation, um, especially since the 90s, but you know, we can go back further to the 70s or my, my friend, I think friend of the podcast, Garrett Felber, just wrote a great piece for, uh, for Boston Review on kind of some of these layered histories of, of abolitionists. Uh, but that those ideas, and not just the ideas, but the organizations that are containers for, for those ideas are really important in a moment like this when you know policymakers um, and are casting about for you know okay what are the solutions to this and you can actually point to organizations like survived and punished organizations like uh, a movement for or formations like the movement for Black Lives groups like Insight groups like Critical Resistance to say like oh no these are the people who have been doing the work. And, and they're actually organizations and institutions. And so it's not just, you know, it makes it less, it makes it more difficult for, you know, a self-proclaimed leader to say, well, we want body cameras or, or whatever else kind of, you know, semi-bogus reformist reform is being, is being proposed. Um, I, I think having having people who have been fighting on these issues here in LA, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles has been really important. Um, uh, 
uh, as well as you know, critical resistance Los Angeles, a coalition like Californians United for Responsible Budget, um, mm -hmm. California Coalition for Women and Prisoners, all these groups that have been working on these issues for years are in a important position or well positioned to say, no, that's a false solution, and this is this is what we actually want. Um, so, so it's really been. So I think it's really important to acknowledge all of all of that labor uh, that that prior organizers and activists have been have been doing. And, and one way I like to think about it as is kind of in the form of of gardening and, and sort of you know tilling the soil, planting the seeds, and you don't necessarily know how or when they're gonna they're gonna flower. Um, but I think I think we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of flowers bloom right now, um, even in this you know very very difficult and dark time. Um, we're seeing a lot of that that gardening labor that so many activists and organizers um, and popular educators have have been doing, including you know the work that you two have been doing with with this show. Absolutely, thank you. Thank you. you. Yeah, there. Oh my gosh, there's so much, and um, I use that article in uh, several of my classes, including in my writing class. Um, I was teaching a, a class uh, inside uh, recently on um, writing for change, right? And uh, and I used that article uh, in that class and uh, got a really good good reception there. Um, so I wanted to let you know that. But uh, something that you said um, or that is uh, discussed in an article or raised in an article is um, the point about um, reducing, you know, how abolitionists have helped to reduce state violence, right? And I think that um, so much of the focus um, is on or tends to be in terms of these conversations that that we have, especially on social media. Um, and uh, my you know love hate relationship with social media continues in earnest. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know the the idea that um, the state has you know a monopoly on violence and that that is legitimate up to a certain point, right? Um, continues to be part of the conversation, especially when people are calling for things like, you know, justice for, you know, one person or another, right? And you can insert whatever hashtag you want, um, you know, in, into that blank space there and, uh, and, and you get the point. But I want to um, I, I ask you or have you think about, um, you know, what does that mean in for abolitionists, right? So how are abolitionists helping to reduce state violence, right? And the the paragraph that I'm looking at and, and that I would encourage people to, you know, go read the entire piece. But if you want to reference this when, uh, when you're listening, uh, you say that... Um, uh, abolitionists have led and participated in campaigns that have fought to reduce state violence and maximize people's collective well-being, right? And you list a number of uh, different things. And, you know, it's been three years. I don't know if you're like me, you probably don't remember everything that you read um, or wrote. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, can can you share some of those examples, um, you know, with, with us? Well, some some examples are that that I'm that I'm familiar with, um, both both as a participant and, and as a scholar researcher, um, are campaigns uh, that critical resistance in California has been a part of with with a group with a coalition called Californians United for a Responsible Budget, which for many years has kind of used that sort of invest divest strategy um, and analysis that uh, I think the movement for Black Lives has really popularized and brought, and brought all over the country. Um, and so California's United for Responsible Budget has worked to reduce prison spending through decarceration and to 
get them into the social welfare capacities of, of the state um, towards towards housing and healthcare. Another important group here in Los Angeles is, is the Youth Justice Coalition. And they've worked for many years trying to get you know, money out of the police budget and going towards youth programming in, in, in Los Angeles and support support for young people. Um, and so so groups like that, uh, I think, have been have been making these sorts of demands and uh, with with a whole host of different degrees of, of, of success. So, for example, you know, there have been a lot of expansions on on the horizon, um, some uh, many of which that have been have been halted or slowed by by this kind of organizing. So, one example is 2006, 2007. California was trying to expand their prison system by about 53,000 beds, which is just fairly unfathomable. And organizers like Rose Brass from Critical Resistance, who's one of the one of the leaders of California's United for Responsible Budget at the time, were really, really, you know, fighting that, opposing it, trying to slow it down at every every level. And then, and then the 2008 uh, financial, you know, in a sense, all of that work came together. All that that massive prison expansion plan off off of. Um, off the table. And so, so I think, you know, all of those things, when we look at what is the carceral landscape, but also what is not in the carceral landscape, mm-hmm. it can be, it can be difficult without storytelling and without a historical context to know, you know, what, what new incinerator didn't get built in, in a neighborhood. And I'm thinking here of the, the mothers of East Los Angeles who, who fought an incinerator neighborhood in the early 80s. There's just, you know, these stories are, are legion of, of the prison expansion that did not happen. Uh, the police budget did not grow. Um, and I think all of that creates some of the context for, you know, we're now in this moment and Again, where I am in Los Angeles, the mayor has, I think, proposed taking $150 million from it, um, which is not nearly enough. Yeah. And, you know, activists pushing back and saying more, more, more. And so all of those things are, are important. And I think, you know, yeah, it's this very important level where you're trying to grow state capacity towards, uh, towards the things that make, that make life livable. So yeah, so Curb, I want to say it was 2012, 20, uh, around there, also came out with a document called uh, Budget for Humanity, where they tried to propose what uh, what new what a new more humane state uh, could could look like, and what a new more humane uh, budgetary capacity of the state could what it what it could do, um, and I think. Within that, one of the things that I've really appreciated and admired about broader anti-imprisonment movements is there are tensions within some of these coalitions between people who, say, identify as anarchists and others who identify as non-sectarian Marxists and others who identify as Christians and, you know, all these things like that. Um, and people who don't necessarily politically identify with the, the kind of ideological political tendency. And I think the way in which anti-imprisonment and policing movements create space for all of those groups to come together has been something that I've really valued. And um, having those types of broad voices of conscience in in the rooms have been have been really important and of course within those rooms there's a lot of people who have these deep intimacies with with the system whether that's you know saying you know a, a child or a parent inside whether that's someone who was formerly inside for many years whether that's someone who did you know a, a week in the jail you know all of those people are are in the room and bringing bringing those experiences to bear on strategy and tactics. Thank you for that. Um, I think that's great. And I, 
you know, it's great to hear you talking about Curb and, and all those groups. I, you know, some of my entrance to abolition around uh, probably 2011, 2012, I was living in the Bay Area and I had started to attend some of these Curb meetings to print posters for the No New SF Jail campaign. And then later met the folks at like Legal Services for Prisoners with Children and went to the FICPFM conference there. And you're absolutely right. Like the exposure to, to those people and folks who have uh, who are parents uh, and who are incarcerated and all that is just so powerful and, and world shifting. Um, you know, even if you at that point sort of lack the, uh, the ideological foundation or the analysis, I, I think you're spot on there. So thank you for that. One other thing I just wanted to say yeah. about the article that, that I think is important for this moment is, is this paragraph where we write, you know, though nobody should be sneered at for how they entered into the critical analysis of imprisonment and policing, whether it was the pedagogy of an officer's nightstick or a professor's syllabus, such a situation did not occur because of, uh, of objective conditions or because of uh, the important scholarship of Michel Foucault and, and others. These victories are a result of abolitionist organizing. So I guess one thing I just wanted to hone in on there is the pedagogy of an officer's nightstick or a professor's syllabus, which is to say that, you know, I think there's probably a lot of people who are coming to, to abolitionist organizing right now through the pedagogy of an officer's nightstick, whether you know, they experienced it themselves or their their friend, loved one experienced it or they saw it on, on video. And I think um, and I think all of those uh, experiences of what bring people into these movements is are really, really um, are really important. And um, and then the other thing is, I think there's also an element to which these experiences right now are layered atop a history uh, of those of those experiences. So, uh, for example, you know, I think it was Forward US, uh, the group put out a report maybe a year and a half ago or so that documented that one out of every two people in the country have an immediate family member who's done at least one night in jail, um, which is to say, there's a whole lot of people who have these deep intimacies with, with, with the carceral system. And they might not have recognized those intimacies as you know, a catalytic political moment. But then when a catalytic political moment happens, like the one we're in, people are able to interlock those prior experiences, whether it's you know, the quotidian daily disrespect that a, that a police officer might treat them with or whether it was the time they, they did a night in, in jail uh, or whether it was their their you know, sibling story about their experience of doing of doing a year in jail or or, or whatever else and, and obviously the uh, certain groups of people black people latinx people brown people poor people uh trans people are you know overrepresented in in the in the in the in those groups um, but also to say that you know, so many people have been have been swept up in the carceral system um for um for various uh, durations of time that that this is not a foreign experience to, to most people in, in in the country mm. thank you for that um I wanted to ask you another one of these, you know, I apologize, another sort of big question, uh, if you don't mind. Um, and I know that, you know, you were uh, a co-host of a podcast on the history of capitalism, who makes sense. Um, I know, obviously, you're a historian. Um, and, you know, your focus uh, deals with central banking and, and labor and all of that. Um, and, you know, there's sort of one thing that I notice about the way that people are discussing this moment and the possibilities of abolition and all of that. Um, and, you know, probably one of these moments of misunderstanding. Um, and that is about the role and the place of capitalism within abolition. Um, and sort of, you know, I, I basically wanted to ask you, you know, how would you explain to somebody the incompatibility between abolition and capitalism 
Um, you know, you hear some, some of the ways that I hear people sort of react to or respond to the idea of abolition, you can get a sense that in their mind, they're thinking about a world without prisons that is essentially the world that we have without law enforcement, right? Um, like living in this country where everything stays constant, except we don't have prisons and police. Um, and I was just wondering, you know, I, I would love to hear sort of your articulation of that intersection um, between the economy, uh, between capitalism and abolition and why they're incompatible. Yeah. Well, to, to kind of route some of this through my, my mentor and the, you know, endlessly insightful Ruth Wilson Gilmore, one thing that she is, she's a forthcoming book and she often says, says this, it's like, you know, abolition means we have to change one thing, which is everything. And I think that is, is very much true with regard to, with regard to the economic system, um, uh, economic and social system of, Mm -hmm. of capitalism is that, it is. I. I, I don't believe uh, that we can just tweak the carceral system and um, and and keep everything humming. Uh, on the other hand, keep the property relation intact. In which is to say, you know, if uh, someone, if a, if a worker, you know, spends all day, you know, making a tire. Uh, at the tire factory and then they say hey you know my my car needs new tires and and i've been working working making this tire i'm gonna you know put it under my arm and walk home what happens to that worker the the tire doesn't belong to them despite Mm -hmm. the fact that they just made it right (laughs) so so that's where the property relation which is so fundamental the uh, to capitalism is is so essential uh, is 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 enforced um, ultimately with with handcuffs and and, and, and weapons. Um, I think another way to think about this, right, is uh, is what was what was George Floyd uh, accused of? He was accused of counterfeiting money, uh, which um, at, from an economic perspective, right this second, you know, there are economists who, who would probably agree with me that that counterfeiting money during a massive recession that is about to lead to, to um, deflation already leading to massive unemployment um, could, could, in a sense, be stimulative of, of the economy, right? Um, so there's a way to see, you know, if indeed it, he was doing what what he was accused of doing, which which I don't know. Um, but there's a way to see you know, what he was doing as as a positive public good, uh, especially relative to the work of of, of policing. Um, I'm obviously not endorsing counterfeiting money um, or or any semblance of that. But I think you know even if you study the history of of counterfeiting, there's a, there's a the, the Secret Service, for example, was invented during during the 1860s, not not to protect President Lincoln, but to chase down counterfeiters um, to uh, ensure that the the security of the right to coinage uh, was um, was was limited, um, especially in this moment when uh, there was there were a lot of struggles over what uh, what mode of payment could or would. Could or would take hold. So all of that's to say that there are um, that capitalism is is very much intertwined with with the carceral with the carceral capacities of of the state and the repressive capacities of the state, and um, it, uh, which is why most abolitionists, if not you know all abolitionists, though I, though I know there's a lot of, um, there can be a lot of tension, you know, well, one of the kind of perils of, 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 of popularity is, is people you know, uh, have, have debates about what is or is not ab- abolition. Uh, but, uh, but you know, most abolitionists who, who, who I've ever met um, are, are 
anti-capitalists of, of various of various stripes um, or certainly get there at the end of the day um, depending on what what given time scale they are they're thinking about or working uh, around does it does that address your question yeah absolutely I, I mean I think that's a fantastic point I'm just kind of taking it in um, you know there's something there's something to that especially on the point of, of counterfeiting in terms of you know, not just the sort of the the vantage point that you're looking at it from, which I think is a fantastic point. But, you know, the uh, one could imagine that a difference between a capitalist society and abolitionist society is the need to even do something like that for survival in the first place, you know, um, and, and sort of uh, building a society around care in a way where such a situation like that wouldn't even need to happen in the first place. Uh, Absolutely. So I appreciate that point. Um, Kim, did you want to go with the next question? Absolutely. Um, and thank you for that, because I, I think that that's uh, one really, really important point. And um, I, I love that quote by um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, right? That abolition means we have to change everything, right? It's not just one thing. It's not just tweaking things at the edges, but getting rid of everything. And I think that's a, a good segue into um, what I was thinking about in terms of, you know, something else that we've heard. We're not hearing so much conversation around this issue right now in this moment uh, or at this point in time in the movement. But, uh, you know, recently, uh, you know, we've been hearing a lot about um, private prisons, Right. And I know you've you've written about private prisons and uh, and, you know, why we need to complicate our thinking and move beyond just analyzing or thinking about private prisons as this separate thing from, you know, public prisons and how these are really part of they're in essence, the same thing. And a lot of these, uh, private prisons, you know, rely on the state. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, because that's something that, you know, Brian and I get this question a lot. Um, and I think that abolitionists in general tend to get this question. Well, what if we just focus on, you know, abolishing private prisons? Um, does that take care of, you know, of the problem? So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. So one thing I wrote about about private prisons um, in a, an article blog that I wrote a few years ago was that um, private prisons are, are a camera, not an engine for the broader system of mass incarceration. And the camera snapshot of private prisons reflects all prisons, which is to say a few people make money and many more people get get. Um, and in some cases, the prison, the photo foregrounds and accentuates certain aspects of prisons in general. So abysmal healthcare provision, which facilitates premature death, is, is a key one. But, but private prisons do not, do not have a monopoly on that by, by any means. Um, the other thing that I think is really important, as, as many people have, have noted, especially, especially Ruth Wilson Gilmore, is that you know, private prisons are under 10% of, of the total of the total bed space within within the carceral system. Um, they, have, they have a larger percentage vis-a-vis -vis, uh, immigrant detention. Um, but again, these aren't these aren't the drivers of, of the system of, of mass incarceration. And while many will point towards their their lobbying and their groups uh, and uh, groups like Alec, um, you know, the carceral binge was was kind of accelerating prior to the, the privatization of, of prisons. And, and I haven't seen in my research um, how many politicians would have uh, changed their vote without that lobbying. Um, uh, and things like that. Uh, so, and I think the other thing is that ultimately there's still, and, and I think one of the most important points that, that um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Craig Gilmore often, often highlight is that you know, by getting prison, by you know, reducing the relative market share of private prisons, that doesn't necessarily mean anyone's going to get out of a cage. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's just as easy to say, you know, okay, now this, now these cages, you know, will be sold to the state, probably at a profit for the private company, um, and and run publicly, right? You know, the, the, if you close down a private prison, it doesn't mean you know anyone's going home necessarily. So, I, so I think those are those. That's some of what I think about with regard to private prisons. I think there's also you know strategic strategic targets, um, and I have not been convinced that private prisons are, are a strategic target um, in, in the anti-imprisonment movement. I think uh, it does a kind of diversionary thing and thinking like, oh, it's all just about, it's all just about profit, as opposed to thinking about, you know, how prisons and carceral capacities and policing are embedded within all of capitalism. Um, sort of like what we were just talking about um, a, a minute ago with regard to anti-capitalism and the carceral state is that you know, the state's carceral capacities are very much uh, can, can go on occurring without without the profit motive uh, necessarily for for a private company because you know the state's only it's not getting if in a public prison it, it's revenue it's not it's not profit that, that that's coming through um, but uh, Another way of thinking about it is what uh, is what my, my co-author um, of that what abolitionists do piece Dan Berger has described private prisons as, as the venal byproducts of, of racial state violence in a capitalist society, which is to say they are a byproduct but not you know the kind of key thing um, and, and and ultimately you know if if we're interested in getting people out of cages and allowing and creating the conditions in which their lives can flourish i don't see targeting private prisons as as the strategic as a strategic um node within within the carceral archipelago mm -hmm. yeah you know and i mean to your point a little bit earlier it's not even just that private prisons, you know, facing this backlash or, uh, you know, the, the prisons are just moving back to public. Now they're acting as real estate investment trusts and just being commercial, you know, being uh, public real estate brokers to the government um, and, you know, absorbing the costs of construction and all of that. So very highly adaptive. Absolutely. And, you know, I guess to follow up on that, I wonder, you know, do you have any thoughts on why i mean you know it could be cultural products like uh, you know a lot of just sort of the cultural like movies and and things focusing on private prisons um you know i certainly understand the that the profit motivation being so on the face is probably what motivates a lot of people's attention to it but you know a lot of the things that private prisons do that people have a problem with you know obviously those things exist within public prisons and i'm not just talking about you know the brutality um you know like certain you know i i know that there's a difference between revenue and profit and that we're talking about the state versus you know like ceos but you know certainly uh the corrections officers and the wardens all profit or prosper uh from the caging of human beings and in terms of the lobbying, you know, we know that, for instance, there are sheriff's associations and, uh, you know, sort of the union muscle of corrections officers and, and all of that. And, you know, even, um, you know, prosecutors associations, even just to go beyond that. Do you think, I mean, I don't know, do you have any read on why people are so, sort of more drawn to or vexed by private prisons, given the fact that, you know, the, the differences seem to be more window dressing than anything else. I don't have co coherent uh, coherent thoughts. I think there's a lot of. Um, I think at best there's a lot of you know very legitimate moral outrage and people really wanting to think that this is that this is kind of the the strategic the strategic lever point, um, and so and so I think. As organizers, as activists, it's also really important to meet people with with that moral outrage and to say, yes, absolutely. Like, what is our goal? Uh, okay, is our goal to reduce 
core civics profits or is our goal to get people home or is our goal um to reduce state violence um or to reduce violence you know uh and i think uh, the m- m- the goal i would hope of people involved in in anti-private prison movements is is to reduce reduce state violence to reduce and parastate state violence in the form of private prisons and to and to get people home and i think you know struggling and studying and figuring out what are the most strategic nodes in a given political geography is is really is really a critical part of 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 activism and organizing, um, as is meeting people uh, where they're at. So, so I'm not sure exactly why why it's so so subjective, but I think I think at its best, it's a lot of people really trying to figure out, you know, what is what are the most strategic nodes, um, and how do we uh, how do we get get people home and reduce reduce carceral capacity. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't think it's uh, it's got to be an either or. It's a both and or all all and right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if we want to do all of those things, um, but yeah, I want to. Um, you know, we're we're running up against the hour here, and I want to be mindful of our time uh, today. But I, you know, really wanted to ask you because we are in a moment where a lot of people are new to abolition, new to um, these ideas, uh, and really, you know, have questions or struggling. And, you know, there's an overwhelming amount of material out there. Um, And I'm seeing more and more and people are creating things every single day. Um, How, what, what's a good entrance point, however people come to abolition, right? So, you know, it could be from social media or like you said, the pedagogy of the nightstick or, you know, um, whatever, um, however people arrive at this point where they're like, yeah, I'm thinking about abolition right now. This is something that, you know, um, I want to identify as an abolitionist. How, well, maybe let's, let me ask this. Let me switch up the question. What was that process for you? Right. Um, in, you know, just your personal experience and what are some suggestions that you would have for folks that are new to abolition? My experience was as a as a college activist working around working around anti-prison issues and learning about anti-prison issues um, and learning about the history of white supremacy and, and racism and capitalism and, and heteropatriarchy in, in this country. And then being involved in various uh, struggles around that, um, especially around, uh, I was involved in a campus group that was working towards um, more educational capacities for, for uh, getting more educational resources into, into state prisons. Um, and also coming up to limits and frustrations with with some of that work uh, around around uh, what at the time was working towards college and prison programs and things like that as far as as far as creating the the political change and you know coming to identify broadly as an abolitionist but also having a really hard time knowing what that actually looked like on a, on a daily basis and so uh, so I joined critical resistance after 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 I finished college um, and uh, did, did things like, I remember, you know, feeling really um, humbled and excited to enter people's signatures the, uh, into, into a spreadsheet that was opposing California prison growth and really seeing like, okay, yeah, this is, this is what the work looks like. It's not, it's not, you know, um, there's lots of work that's very that's very exciting, but there's also a lot of really important work that's entering entering spreadsheets and you know figuring out follow up contact info um, uh, so that you can then organize a big protest at the state capitol and things and things like that. So that was that was my experience. Um, I would encourage people, in addition to studying, um, that is 
that is always, always, always essential. Um, studying, reading, listening, to dip their dip their toe in the water to join to join a local organization um, and to um, to come to it with with you know, all of their historical experience, their humility. Um, and their questions to try and to try and figure out, and they don't have to say, you know, "I am an abolitionist." You know, I know it. You know, deep, deep, deep in my soul, to know that you want to reduce the police budget by more than 150 million. To use to use the LA example, mm-hmm. um, and that you know, working alongside other abolitionists and working alongside other activists who who may have a whole host of different, you know beliefs is is a great way to um to grow your own political education and to and to uh deepen your commitments to to other people um and and i think those are i i i guess i you know i know i know it was for me um and then i think the other thing is uh always to ask the question that that the the great scholar activist um grace lee boggs always asked us which is to say you know what time is it on on the clock of the world um and to say you know okay what what motion is happening is happening now um so when i look out for example again you know to come back to my current political geography it it, is living in los angeles and you know the work that groups like People's Budget, Los Angeles, um, which is a coalition of groups anchored by Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, um, but as a bunch of other organizations, people who are fighting the Olympics, No Olympics LA, um, Ground Game LA, all these groups, I think, you know, I'm not sure to what extent Sunrise, the Sunrise Movement Los Angeles, I'm not sure to what extent any of those groups have kind of a coherent, like we are an abolitionist organization and I don't think they necessarily need to to be able to see the work they're doing, at least from my vantage point, as abolitionist in organiz- in orientation. And I think a lot of people can can come to the work that way, even if they're not sure or they have a lot of questions about whether or not they are abolitionists. And if they do identify as an abolitionist, awesome. Of course, so many, so many, so many people do, especially people who have deep intimacies with with the system um but i think the kind of it's okay to have a motley coalition and it's also very important to be very clear about what the goals are and, uh, I, I think that's where having abolitionists in the room is also very important and one of the things that's been important to those coalitions groups like curb is to say you know okay well if we want if we want all of us you know in the room together then we you know, need to be clear about a few about some non-negotiables, and some of those non-negotiables are, you know, not strengthening the system. Um, and, and, and there's a whole host of, of, of non-negotiables and things like that. But but I think I, w- I would encourage people who are, are saying, "Wow, this abolitionist stuff it sounds it sounds interesting," but I never thought of it from that perspective before. Which is to say, you know, go get involved, meet meet some abolitionists. Um, go 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 work alongside them and you know chances are chances are you will you will find people doing good work even if you might you know have have different degrees of disagreement about about some of the biggest some of the big questions i think you you can often agree on on what is to be done in in the here and now mm-hmm. no i think that's such a an important point uh that you made about coalition building right uh and being clear about what the goals of, you know, at least your organization or, um, you know, are, are doing, right? So knowing, knowing what it is that, as you put it, um, the non-negotiables are and, uh, and working from there that we're not all going to agree, right? Like if, if consensus is the goal, like we're missing the point, right? We're building coalitions across, you know, vast swaths of, you know, groups with, you know, very different perspectives and people coming at this um, in, in a lot of different ways, but that there are some things that we can, you know, agree on and, um, and that we can move or push things towards, um, 
more towards abolition. And uh, I think that that's, that's a tough one for a lot of people. Um, I think, you know, it, it was something that, um, you know, I'm so deeply grateful that I had, um, that I had other people that helped me understand um, a lot of these things. And I'm, I feel like, I mean, it's been, I'd say about 10 years now. Um, and I, I mean, I was fucking up royally all along the way. <laughs> and when I finally, you know, like it, it took a while to really, um, to answer some questions and, or not even answer, but to refine my thinking around some of the questions that I had, um, personally and to, you know, think about this and sit with things, but it was also something that happened with other people. Right. And, um, and we were test driving things on the ground that, you know, we weren't experts at, or, you know, had an idea of what, you know, the outcome was going to be, but we were willing to try. And I think that that is also part of the ethos is if there is, you know, an abolitionist ethos is you're going to fuck up um, and saying, okay, well, that's not going to prevent me from, you know, from trying. And, uh, and I'm going to keep, you know, asking questions and being around people that can help me understand this thing better. And I mean, as much as I've read, I still feel like I have a lot more learning and growth to do. Um, So I'm always like really taken aback when people are like, well, you know, give us your expert opinion. My what? I'm like, no, (laughs) that's not, no, no. I'm so uncomfortable with, um, with that. And uh, so I appreciate, you know, your comments on that. I totally feel you on that. And for a second or, you know, an hour or two ago, I was like, why are they even talking to me? You know? Um, so, um, but then I think the other thing back to, back to the question we were just talking about, about people entering different, different kinds of work, which is also to think about what Angela Davis drawing on W.E.B. Du Bois talks about as abolition democracy, which is the new institutions that are going to need to be created to create what I think, Brian, you described earlier as the kind of economy and a society, a society of care. And so I think there's also a lot of work to be done around what type of reparative public goods need to be created. So I study and talk a lot about labor markets and unemployment and the need for for a federal job guarantee. And so I and and when I think about work that the one of the greatest abolitionists, Rose the late Rose Braz, did, she spent she spent the last years of her life working on environmental justice issues. Um, and so I think you know those those issues of both you know the work we want capacities to make it to make it um, appear are are also very 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 important work and so I would also encourage listeners or anyone else to to get involved in in, in the, that type of work as well um, and, and and you can and you can do both you can fight for you know uh, you can work on housing rights um, you can work on uh, labor rights, you can work on environmental justice issues, all of those things I think can and do connect to, to abolitionist, uh, to abolitionist work. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I mean, so much, so much of abolitionist work, you know, uh, takes place outside of, you know, the confines of prisons and policing, you know, it, it is like you said, the housing and the environment. And obviously all of these things intersect that are independent from one another, but um, you know, if people are looking for places to use their skills or their knowledge, you know, I, I think that's a great point. Um, you know, I wanted to close out, uh, David, I don't know if there's anything that you're working on right now or anything you would like uh, to point folks to so they can find you and support your work and, and catch up on what you're doing. Um Working on a few different things. I, I have a book that um, will be coming out at some point um, called uh, Fearing Inflation, Inflating Fears, The Civil Rights Struggle for Full Employment and, and the Rise of the Carceral State, um, 1929 to 1986. Um, you can also find me on Twitter at David P. Stein, um, and you can find links there to all of 
bunch of articles and, and things like that that, I, that I've written. Um, you mentioned earlier the podcast that I used to co-host and produce, um, Who Makes Sense, a History of Capitalism podcast, and that's C-E-N-T-S. I, I'm no longer um, host or producer on it, but the, but the show continues with, with monthly shows with historians and scholars talking about capitalism, its history, and, and hopefully how, how it can be made obsolete. And so, so yeah, that's that's some of some of what I'm up to. Uh, and um, I think I listed a lot of different organizations that people can can seek out, and I'd, I'd encourage them to to throw some donations towards towards critical resistance, towards uh, towards um, survived and punished, towards towards uh, a whole host of, of, of groups that I named uh, on this. And of course, of course, donate donate to bail funds. Absolutely, I second that. Well, thank David, you. yeah, oh thank, you. thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we will definitely link to all of that in the episode notes, and I really appreciate your time and, and your thoughts today. Thank you both so much. It was, it was a pleasure. And again, I'm, I'm humbled to be to be asked to be on the show. Thank you. Take care. Take care, David. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Beyond Prisons. If you find our work valuable, we ask that you head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to Beyond Prisons. You can support our work by sharing this and past episodes on social media. If you're financially able to support us, you can do so for as little as $1 per month over on Patreon at patreon.com backslash beyondprisons. We recently launched our new website www.beyond-prisons.com. There you will find a Beyond Prisons guide for supporting prisoners during the COVID-19 crisis, including a link to a downloadable PDF in small and large print formats. There's also a section on mutual aid projects that we update frequently and a list of demands that includes a call for the immediate release of prisoners. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can drop us a line at beyondprisonspodcast at gmail.com. Beyond Prisons is created and hosted by Kim Wilson and Brian Sonstein. Ellis Maxwell edits our episodes and Victoria Nam manages our website and volunteers. The music is by Jared Ware. We'd like to give a special thanks to our many volunteers who are helping us transcribe our episodes to make them more accessible, as well as our donors who provide 100% of the funding for this show. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for listening.